0: You're never saving any amount of money, right? That $40 doesn't exist just because you've got a sweater marked down. You can't pay your rent with the money you saved shopping. You're still spending $60. Um, but retailers know that like we're going to feel good getting that saving. But there's no savings. You're just spending, you know. You might spend a little less, but you're still spending. And, and the question you should be asking is, do I need this? And do I want to spend this amount for it? But we often don't.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host open office hours. You can register to attend by going to bit.ly.com forward slash A D S O. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today uses behavioral science, real life, and humor to understand, explain, and change the world. He's the editor-in-chief of PeopleScience.com, a new thought leadership platform for applying behavioral science to the modern marketplace. He's co-authored Dollars and Cents with Dan Ariely, a book that was lauded as a brilliant and accessible look at behavioral economics, and it was dubbed Best Business Book of the Year. By the business insider huffington post audible and the washington post he's also a comedian who has toured most of this planet and even won the bill hicks spirit award for thought-provoking comedy he's pretty much your friendly typical Princeton-educated lawyer turned award-winning comedian, best-selling author, and champion for behavioral economics. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, the man New York Times describes as delectable, Jeff Chrysler. Jeff, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today, man. I really appreciate you coming onto the show.
0: Thank you for having me and for putting together that very flattering introduction.
1: It is my absolute pleasure, Jeff. So talk to us a bit about where you grew up and what was it like there?
0: Sure. Uh, So I grew up in New England, Massachusetts, uh, in a town called Amherst, Mass., where there are five colleges right around there, Amherst College, University of Massachusetts, and a few others, Hampshire, Smith, and Mount Holyoke. Uh, my dad was a physics professor at the University of Massachusetts. So I grew up sort of a kid of a egghead uh, in a family that really valued education. I'm the youngest of three. My brother and sister are both very smart, both very highly accomplished in their own fields. Uh, and, you know, it was a rural town. It wasn't like living in the city. Um, and, you know, we studied and we played and, and it was fun. And, uh, you know, in my family, high high academic achievement, like I said, was always expected, which I guess I kind of did. But then after that, I decided to <clears throat> get a little bit off the treadmill. Um, it was my, uh, what do you call it? My, uh, uh, not, uh, what do you call uh, uh, it? on the word, my privilege. Thank you for... Uh, it was my privilege to have the the chance to you know I went to um, a great uh, uh, prep school called Exeter Academy and then I went to Princeton and then I went to law school and uh, it was my privilege that I could still go through all that and sort of try something different um, with all that as a safety net behind me.
1: So, what kind of kid were you in high school, and what did you imagine that your future would look like?
0: Um, high school was interesting. It was sort of a bit of a of a pivot point for me because. Um, I was at this very this prep school Exeter where everyone was really smart and everyone worked really hard. And for a while, I was just really grinding really hard. And I realized I was getting really stressed out about my like grades and performance in high school, while also like playing sports and having fun. But at some point, I just I stopped stressing about it, and I and I sort of I wouldn't say I consciously became Zen, but I said I'll work as much as I can, but I'm not going to worry because I I pictured a future of myself. Uh, alcoholic and divorced and full of ulcers in my 30s. Uh, and I didn't really want that. Um, and, I, and I believe, and still believe in hard work and learning from others, but um, that, that excessive stress and worry about little things can only get in the way. Uh, and I think that's helped guide me since then. Uh, I didn't really have a clear picture of what the future was, uh, except for one potential future, that sort of <laughs> rough one that I described. So how
1: did you go from from prep school through this battery of education, becoming a lawyer, and then um, going into stand up comedy? Like how how did that happen?
0: Um, some of it was being the youngest child. I mean, there are anecdotal studies and uh, maybe some others that youngest children often need attention, and so they develop sort of that entertainment tick. Uh, some of it was having the privilege to know that I could take risks because I had these sort of fallback. You know, I had a good, I had tools. I had a law degree at Princeton degree. I was never going to live uh, on the street. Um, and some of it was, you know, I think I had a developed sort of a very active mind. I think probably most of your listeners as data scientists are, are similar, uh, that sort of never rested. And at some point I sort of pointed that at, um, what I thought was something more challenging. Like to me, I, it sounds a little conceited, but like I always could get good grades if I worked hard, if I studied. Um, and it almost seemed like it was an easy path for me to go to these schools. Like I had, I had a road laid out for me. I don't deny that it was privilege, right? If I went to Exeter and I could study, get grades, Princeton, get grades, law school, get grades. And I had these job opportunities to be a big corporate lawyer and make a bunch of money and be on the corporate partner track. And like this future laid out for me and I just felt like I never really earned it. And I kind of wanted to challenge myself. It seemed, I don't want to say easy, but it seemed like that all I had to do was just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um, And at some point I'm like, you know, I want to do something different, something special, something that's hard. Um, And I was just drawn by the power of words, uh, whether that's like in a constitution, there's a limited number of words in a constitution that creates a whole society. A contract is a number of words between parties that creates a relationship um, or poetry and music or comedy and how that creates feelings and emotions and other connections. And um, comedy drew me because it was this unique challenge that uh, when you see comedians perform, even the most famous, they get on stage, like I've seen Robin Williams perform many times. He gets on stage and for the first few minutes he can do no wrong, but then he still has to be funny. Like it doesn't matter who you are and where you come from, you have to perform. Um, and that was a huge challenge for me to like I just be completely relying upon my skills. Uh, uh, and the, the fun thing about comedies, you can talk about anything. The only rule is you have to make people laugh. But you can talk about, you can talk about your life. You can talk about politics. You can talk about economics and data science. Uh, you just have to be able to connect on that emotion. And, and that, to me, seemed really freeing. Um, that There was just one rule to follow. And you could dress however you want. You could show up whenever you want. Um, and, and I love that idea of, of the potential to talk about big ideas. Man,
1: that's really Profound. You're just like, all right, let me pick something hard to do that. That's so stupid. Um, yeah, that's that awesome. Uh,
0: <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely,
1: absolutely love that. So, talking about words, talking about comedy. So, how, let's, let's start right here. So, how has comedy taught you more about behavioral science or economics? And from there, from doing the comedy, how did you end up linking up with Dan Ariely to, sure. to write this amazing book?
0: Um, those are great questions. You know, a comedian typically is sort of an observer of human behavior, and then a reporter on that human behavior, and a scientist, a behavioral scientist, is someone you know that studies human behavior and tries to understand why things happen. I often describe it as sort of a yin yang relationship. Right, the, the comedian says, "Hey, you ever notice that people do this stupid thing," and the behavioral scientist says, "Yeah, and this is why." So to me, there's a great fit now. I didn't, that, that, I didn't come to that from a, um, I didn't approach that in a linear way. Like I didn't know and say, oh, there's behavioral science. It's a perfect fit. That's, this is my perspective looking back on my journey. I see the connection. Um, you know, more specifically, sort of the, the actual path that I walked looking forward was uh, I did a lot of comedy, a, little po- a lot of political comedy um, starting out. Uh, and someone um, approached me with the opportunity to write a business column uh, for Jim Cramer's website, Jim Cramer does the mad money. Uh, that crazy guy, like, honk, honk. He's like a morning radio guy. Um, Anyway, he has a website called thestreet.com, and a friend of mine was like, hey, do you want to write about the news uh, in the week when men make jokes about the business news? I said, no. He said it pays. I said, yes. Uh, So I did that, and I had an economics degree, and so I I could understand what was happening. Um, Through that column, I got noticed I got an opportunity to write my first book, which was a satire, note satire uh, called Get Rich Cheating, which was all about Enron and, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong taking steroids and steroids in baseball and Donald Trump was in there 10 plus years ago. And uh, it was about this, a culture of cheating. Um, and it was, the, the satirical voice was, you know, you should do this. Everyone's doing it. You can too. Right. But it was really, um, had a different perspective on uh, morals and ethics. Anyway, so um, that had gave, opened some doors for me, and one of the doors, the one that's proved the most fruitful, um, is meeting Dan Ariely, who, uh, as your listeners may know, he's the author of Predictably Irrational, his big book. He's one of the leaders in the field of behavioral science, uh, behavioral economics. Um, he invited me to lecture at his class at Duke University uh, in character. Like, my character is sort of a Stephen Colbert, tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and I would go, and I would tell his Duke students, I did this several times, hey, you know, you guys should cheat, right? Cost-benefit analysis. No one gets caught. There's no cost. And the benefits are you make millions. All you have to do is throw out your ethics. Um, I would do my whole routine. And it wasn't, he didn't always, he didn't introduce me as a comedian. He didn't say it was a joke. Um, and it was fascinating to me to watch these students interact with me and have different reactions. And the first time I did it, and then, you know, talked with Dan, who I didn't really know much about, was what I, my light bulb moment, right? Where I was like, aha, because that I learned about behavioral science. I learned that, behavioral economics, behavioral science, a lot of different terms for it. Um, And there are differences, but let's not get in the weeds. Um, It basically like looks at why we make the decisions that we do. It doesn't abandon traditional economics, but, you know, traditional economics says everything's cost benefit analysis. Reality is that that's not how it works. We are busy people. We have a lot of stress and we don't always make the rational choice. Um, And that's one reason why I sort of rejected doing work as in, in traditional business and economics or in the law because all the all the rules and the ways that the that science, not the economic science, which isn't really science, but I know, um, said people would act, that didn't prove true because people are human. Uh, so anyway, I'm I'm sort of rambling here and getting farther ahead of us, but I connected with Dan and saw his work and the work of his peers, and it was like, oh, it it, it, it was a crystallizing moment. I was like, oh, Now I know why I rejected all this other stuff. Now I know why I'm drawn to obsessing how people do stupid things. And I just sort of dug in and we did some projects um, and we came out with a book together uh, on financial decision-making in 2017. You know, since then, I've been trying to find ways to advocate for behavioral science as a, you know, it's not a silver bullet, but it's an additional tool uh, for people to have in their tool belt for their personal lives, for their relationships, uh, for organizations, businesses, for societies and governments, and um, it's just another way to approach things. I don't think any one approach is, is accurate for everything, but it, it's, a, it's a fresh perspective that I think is useful.
1: What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to science at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bit.ly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode right on man i'm ready to get into the book so by the time this airs it'll probably be right around thanksgiving black friday cyber monday time and probably a good time for people to start thinking about their financial decisions and then what they do with their money. When it comes to money, we really don't have as great of an understanding of it as we might think that we do. So let's kind of get some econ 101 type of stuff out of the way, starting with a seemingly easy question. What is money?
0: Money is something that I would like more of <laughs> um, money is, is a way that we measure value. Uh, it, it's a way that we decide, you know, when we're, when we're weighing our choices, um, what are the value of our choices? And, and money is one measure for that. It's become sort of a predominant measure, uh, which is its own issues. Um, And and money is, it's really like, I'm not an anti money or anti capitalism guy by any stretch. I think money has done some incredible things and and money allowed society to blossom. Um, Money is just really complex, right? Like money is what we call fungible, Right. Any $10 you have is the same as any other $10, whether it's a $10 bill or a bunch of quarters or a check or a promise to get $10. Um, and that allows us to do a lot of things and, and be flexible with it. Right? Money is storable. You can save money and invest it. You couldn't do that in the barter days. Right? If you raise chickens, you couldn't store them for 40 years. Um, money is general. You can use it for anything. Uh, it's divisible. You can break it up into different amounts. Um, there's all these cool features of money uh, as a as a measure of value and as a tool for trading that has allowed us to do so much stuff to specialize and, and focus and, and not just all be farmers and hunter gatherers. Um, what's great about money, all that complexity is also one of the reasons why it's so hard to think about because there's so many things you could do with money. Um, that it becomes overwhelming for most people to process the, the potential. You know, there's a there's a concept called opportunity costs, which again is sort of econ 101, we often forget the opportunity costs. When you make a financial decision, you're supposed to weigh the opportunity costs, which is what else could you do with that money you're about to spend now or anytime in the future. That's a lot to think about. Right? What else could you do with like $5? $5, right, $5 you're about to spend on a coffee, it could be, you know, a couple newspapers, it could be uh, invested in, and and have compound interest that it could be a bunch of bubble gum um, there's just so many pote- potential uses for that that like we don 't think about that we don 't even come close and it 's because it 's so hard to think about and I guess uh, you know I, I should pause for a second and say there 's one thing I want everyone to take away from this and and almost every time I talk about money is that money is hard to think about and it 's hard for everyone now, like i I talk to financial advisors I talk to bankers and professionals money people. And everyone has trouble with money, even the most experienced at the top of their game, um, because it is complex, because we deal with uncertainty and stress and a lot of unknowns. Um, and ultimately, we deal with our emotions, right? The, the, there's no clear right or wrong choice with money that we all always know. There's always some uncertainty. And when uncertainty is in any decision, um, it get, that, that gap gets filled by the emotional needs that we have. The need to feel like we're making the right choice. The need to feel like we've done the right thing. The need to feel good. Um, and that's when we can be prone to make irrational decisions because we go by our feelings and emotions. And, you know, I'll, I'll wrap up this current diatribe in a second. But for most of my life, and I think most of what I'd studied, I always thought of money as being very cold, heartless and emotionless as it's numbers on a spreadsheet, it's data, it's graphs, um, it's, it's plotting out calculations. But emotion is the, you know, hidden variable in the equation of financial decisions that we just often forget about. Um, and what I love about the field of behavioral science is that's what it's about. It's about the emotion that drives human decisions, it doesn't toss out all the traditional economics, it doesn't toss out all the data and data analysis it just layers on top of that, like, people's reality. Um, And I think that's important, right? I mean, you know, you've got data science and data science fans listening, and I think that, like, data science has, it's amazing what's happened in the last decade or so, that we know so much about people um, and the decisions that they make and where they go. I feel like marrying the data science with the people science is going to be, like, an incredible combination. To not just know like where they're going and what buttons to put, buttons to push, but why? Right? Why are people doing this? Then we can step back and get the holistic view of the data and the humanity, um, and hopefully get people to you know a better place for themselves and their their partners and teams and the world. Let's go save everybody. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that's that's awesome, man. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that, and I really agree with you about taking the data science, colliding with the people science and doing some interesting stuff. A couple of things I wanted to touch on here. Yeah. Like when it comes to, to money, right? Like w- why is it that we can't think or we sometimes we don't think about these decisions the way that we should be thinking about them? We ended up falling back on these mental shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we do that? And what are a couple, of, a couple of mental shortcuts that we can kind of catch ourselves in so that we can correct?
0: Sure. Uh, well, it goes back to this idea of uh, wanting to feel good, right? These mental shortcuts that we fall for, and sometimes we fall for them, and sometimes marketers and salespeople like lay traps for us to walk into. We fall for them because we don't know what to do when it comes to a financial decision. Um, we don't weigh that opportunity cost, right? No one, you know, looks at a cup of coffee and thinks, oh, what else could I do with this 250 and goes through all the right? So instead of doing that, we, we we're open to um, other things, other nudges is the term of art that's often used um, to get us to make a certain decision. Uh, and that's our real problem. And, and you know, I should say that's not the end <laughs> of the world. Like, I don't, uh, I don't advocate for people to become these computers that do weigh the opportunity cost. That's not realistic, right? Uh, you can't change human nature. But if we understand our human nature, we understand what we fall for, we understand the mistakes we make, then we can start to create systems and environments and, and products and services. So, we use our human nature for our own benefit instead of having it be used against us. And for me, what I believe is first understanding these different biases, these principles or heuristics or traps, there's a lot of terms for it, which are the different sort of emotional triggers that make us make a decision one way or another. You know, there there are a ton out there. You know, one of my favorites to talk about is something called the pain of paying, which is just this idea, this fact, I guess, that when we pay for something, it stimulates the same region of our brain as physical pain. And that pain should serve a purpose, right? It should make us stop and think about what we're doing, right? You put your hand on a stove, that burn, that sensation, that pain makes you look at your hand and move it away. So, the pain of paying should make us stop and go, oh, am I making the right choice right now? But humans, we don't act that way. Instead of like feeling that pain, we numb the pain, right? All of these financial tools that we have developed from credit cards to Apple Pay and all this, excuse me, they all numb the pain of paying. So, we don't feel the payment. We don't feel that pain that burn. We don't think about it. And therefore we overspend. um, And as we spend automatically. And, you know, I love talking about the pain of pain because it's a great example of it. It, It's something that once you're aware of it, A, you'll notice the fact that you start spending maybe like you're in a casino with casino chips, but also like you can dial it up or dial it down depending upon your goals, right? Like I introduced this as a negative, right? The idea that we reduce the pain of paying as a bad thing because I think that makes us spend more, right? And it does. Credit cards, uh, Apple Pay, all these things make us all spend more. But you can know that, and you can use it for your own benefit, right? You can uh, do automatic deductions from your paycheck into a four hundred one k for retirement, or into a savings account, or use one of the many apps that helps you save for a goal automatically. And when it's something's automatic, you don't feel it, and therefore you're working towards a good goal. Um, you know, there's default options. Do that. You know, there's the potential to use this for good. Um, and a lot of interventions around the world have done just that. Uh, but you know, coming from an American consumer perspective, I see that sort of re- reduction in friction, um, being used to make people spend more. Um, that's one, I feel like there's a ton more. I know we, I know we sort of pre-chatted it on in email. Some of the, Oh, your favorites. So I'll stop at that.
1: Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely going to get into some of these, these, um, biases and and stuff a little bit later but this idea of opportunity cost is interesting too you talked about it in the book um there's an experiment where um you guys went to a car dealership and Mm -hmm. people were ready to buy a car and you go up to them and ask okay what else could you spend this money on right like why is it that people get so surprised or maybe just stuck on on this one thing that they could do with their money so
0: so that um that experiment that you mentioned was was my co-author Dan Ariely and uh, some uh, of his colleagues when they went to a car dealership, a Honda dealership, and they asked people if you don't spend thirty grand on a Honda, what else could you spend it on, right? Essentially, the opportunity cost of thirty grand on a Honda, and no one would answer, and no one could answer. And they pressed and pressed them, and then finally, the best they could do is people would say, well, if I don't spend thirty thousand dollars on a Honda, I can spend it on a Toyota. That's not a different choice. <laughs> That's just a different brand of car. It's still the same thing. Um, and what that sort of shows is that is it's not that when opportunity costs and that calculation comes up, we don't get it right. It's that we don't even really try. And I think the reason why, among the reasons why those people couldn't get outside of buying a $30,000 car and why we have the same thing, we can't think of our alternatives, is none of us want to think of ourselves as being wrong. I mean, we make a decision and however much time we put into it, and it's often very little, sometimes it's a lot. We don't want to question ourselves. You know, you can look no further than uh, politics. You know, a news item. I guess by the time this airs, who knows? <laughs> who knows what's going on? We'll be living in caves with fire raining down on us. Uh, but people are stuck in their ways. I mean, there's something called confirmation bias. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of it, where you get stuck at a, with a certain opinion, and every new piece of news, even if it contradicts it, you find a way to make it support your worldview, right? You may say, oh, that's fake news. Or you say that's not accurately sourced. Uh, or you say, well, it actually support." you know, you find a way to do it. And, and the same is true for all of us in our in our lives and our spending decisions. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard the experience like that you know, older generation say, well, that's so how it's always been, right? Like I always give, um, I have a financial advisor who I give, uh, you know, a $10,000 check to at the end of the year. That's just always how it's been. That mindset is hard to change in us, Uh, collectively or individually
1: yeah it's super interesting um that that like yeah thirty thousand for a honda what else can you use it on i could think of a few different things but the book is full of so many interesting experiments i really enjoyed going through those and one part of the book i want to dig into now is the part about relativity right with the holiday season coming up that's deals galore black friday cyber monday so many ways for us to spend money right But I guess it turns out that we're not actually as good as we think we are when it comes to valuing stuff, are we? So talk to us about this concept of relativity and how it affects our decision making when it comes to money.
0: Well, I would ask your listeners, um, this is something that I ask people when I give talks all the time. What's an easier question to answer? What would you like for dinner or would you like chicken or pasta for dinner? Most people say the easier question to answer is chicken or pasta. That's true. What would you like for dinner is, is sort of like, what's the opportunity cost? So it could be anything, right? Like I'm not eating tonight. It could be nothing. It could be like a bowl of pasta. It could be rocks. It could, the whole world is open. That's a hard thing to think about. What would you like for dinner? Anyone out there that has kids uh, like I do, um, and congratulations, uh, is it, you don't ask that question because they can't answer that. But if you ask, would you like A or B, people know if they like A better than B or B better than A. They can compare the two. And so they might not know the absolute value of A or B, but they know the comparative value. And that's what relativity is about when you compare the relative value of things. How that comes about, it comes out in a lot of ways in financial decision making. Uh, one is, you know, again, as we approach these holidays in, in sales, right? Sale prices are basically using relativity to make us feel like we're making the right choice. You know, people will buy a sweater that was a hundred dollars but is marked down to sixty dollars a lot more often than they'll just buy a sixty dollar sweater. Cause you approach that sixty dollar sweater, you got to think, oh, is this a good deal? Like what else could it be? Or some sort of opportunity cost? I have other sweaters. You look at a sweater that was a hundred and it's marked down, you're like, oh well, I know a sixty dollar sweater is better than a hundred dollar sweater. Like I know that for sure. And suddenly you feel smart and you fall for that relativity. Relativity also comes up in Percentages. Uh, you know, I'm sure that um, your data sites folks probably run this all the time, explaining to people like how the numbers play out. Again, another thing I'll ask folks is, if you go shopping and you're buying something for $25 and you go to the front, the clerk says it's next door for only $5. Would you go next door? Most people say yes, I would. The next day you go to a different store, you're buying a $1,000 mattress, and the clerk says, oh, it's available next door for $980. Would you go next door? Most people would say no. I really asked the same question twice, right? Would you go next door for $20? But people mentally get caught up in like the percent they're saving when they're saving nothing or the percent, right? The first case, it's 80% off. The second, it's, I don't know math, 2% off, whatever it is. Um, and it just shows how like we're, we're stuck in this comparing things, this this sense of relativity that doesn't serve us. And when it comes to financial decisions, all the time, Our our choice, our thought should be, what is the amount of money that is leaving or entering my wallet or my account? Um, but things like percentages can throw us off, right? Like investing professionals, they may present to someone, hey, if you do this now, you're going to save you know, 0.1% more per year. And a lot of people are going to say, that's nothing. But they know 0.1% compounded, et cetera, and how it plays out over time. That's huge. Right? That, you know, depending on how much you're investing, that can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. But people don't, easily get that because of the relativity and the percentages. Um, it's a fascinating thing. And, and one of the things I've loved about this field is, is also thinking, applying it to the rest of life, because I think it's not just in financial decisions that when we don't know how to value something, we compare it, right? This, this concept of um, FOMO, fear of missing out, is really about relativity, right? We, you know, on social media, we look at people posting their beautiful lives and compared to our lives that we know well, that seems like relatively great and that can cause people to be depressed and it causes problems I and mean, studies show like teenagers, it, it's harmful. And that's about like how we value things in this case, our lives by comparing the relative value to others. Oftentimes others like pretend and fake lives. So there's my deep moment for that.
1: Is there like, like do we know like in terms of brain size, like neurology or whatever, like why is it that we do this kind of comparison like is there like something way back from ancient days of running on the savannah
0: i i am confident there probably is i'm not confident that i could give you the answer yeah. um you know there's there is this concept of system one versus system two thinking mm-hmm. which some of your listeners may be familiar with um pioneered by uh kahneman you know, Don, daniel kahneman and amos tversky uh you know they, they presented it in their book um which I'm spacing on the name right now. It's horrible. Thinking fast, fast and slow. And slow yeah. Yeah. yeah, The idea being like in our brains, we have a, a system one way of thinking and a system two way of thinking system. One is the sort of um, fast, like act now, uh, you know, you might think of a fight or flight, like rapid response. Um, and it's sort of intuitive and it's often um, unconscious. Like we're not even always aware that we're making decisions based on system one. System two is the more thoughtful, deep, reflective thing that we like to think we all engage in system two, slow, deep thinking, right? The, the book, um, you know, thinking fast and slow is the, the great way to present that. You know, this on a, on a brain, you know, I don't remember how much neuroscience there is in there, but the idea of us, how we sometimes think slow and calm, but in the moment of stress and pressure, we often act on that system two, excuse me, on the system one um, rapid response, if you will. Uh, is sort of the underpinning a lot of this behavioral science. When it comes down to a decision moment, we often are making it based upon um, unseen forces uh, and invisible uh, sort of nudges um, that guide us. um, Even if we think we're doing some deep thinking, it tends to be momentary feelings and, and intuitions rather than, should I do it? I think next time you're buying something and you're whipping out your credit card, like did you really like weigh the pros and cons and you know what else you could spend that money on, or does this you just kind of have an intuitive sense that you're doing the right thing? Now it's not always bad. I don't want people to freak out, become freaks about money, but that's what happens to us.
1: So when it comes to like shopping, like one thing I do, I consider myself to be a pretty good shopper, but what I'll do is I'll uh I'll set up in advance, like in my mind, like, all right, cool, I'm going to go buy a a sweatshirt. And most I want to spend on a sweatshirt, 40 bucks. Like that's the most I want to spend on one. And have that framework in place and then like, use that to guide whatever purchasing decisions I make. Is that a good way to kind of overcome that negative aspect of relativity?
0: Well, it's a good way to maintain some self-control in general and and to like, to shop in general, to so set limits. I mean, you know, one thing, overarching issue that we have above all else is sometimes we lack self-control even when we know, okay, there's relativity and sale prices that might trick us or pain of paying. Or anything else that we might fall for, we still might make the bad decision. So by setting up systems for shopping and spending, whether they're budgets uh, or they're that are they're broad, like this week I'm going to only spend this much, or at this trip or on this item. In your case, a sweatshirt that is a way to help us overcome. It's a way essentially to make us check ourselves. Because what might happen is, say you say you're only going to spend $40 on a sweatshirt, you might see a $50 sweatshirt and maybe in the end you buy it. But because you set up that limit, you're going to stop and think about it. You're going to stop and say, okay, is this worth $50? And you still might be prone to other mistakes, but it's even that small moment of stopping to think can make a big difference, right? Over time. Um, And maybe you won't buy it. Because you're like, no, I set a, I set a forty dollar limit for a reason. I don't remember what it is right now. The sweatshirt's cool, I want it, but it'll still be there tomorrow if I change my mind. So yeah, setting up any sort of system. Sometimes it's shopping with a buddy. Um, sometimes it's going over your your monthly spending and sort of criticizing yourself. There there are a lot of different ways to start to overcome or or at least recognize the patterns that you're falling into.
1: And when we're shopping, right, like it's Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals coming up, mm-hmm. and we'll see stuff on sale and maybe just buy it because it's reduced mm-hmm. price, right? How are some ways that you've seen like retailers and companies trick us with this relativity thing?
0: Sure. Well, just even having the sale price there is a way, right? We get anchored as another term to that high price. You think, Oh, this sweater or this is, it's gotta be a hundred dollars, but I'm getting a deal here. I'm saving $40. Like, you're never saving any amount of money, right? That $40, dollars doesn't exist just because you got a, you know, a sweater marked down. Um, you can't pay your rent with the money you save shopping. You're still spending sixty dollars. Um, but retailers know that like we're going to feel good getting that savings. I mean, there are there's a, a lot of commercials that'll come out during the holidays that talk about how much savings you can get if you shop at you know Best Buy or Lowe's or whatever it may be. But there's no savings. You're just spending. You know, you might spend a little less, but you're still spending. And and the question you should be asking is, do I need this? And do I want to spend this amount for it? But we often don't, um, you know, the holidays are particular, are, are treacherous for so many reasons. One is cause of all the sales the other is the holidays themselves. They create this like emotional, like pull. I mean, you know, I don't want to get too, too quasi fake <laughs> philosophical, but it's hard to, how do you express love to people? Right. And the, the holidays and the commercialization of the holidays say you do it by buying gifts. And so all of a sudden, just a mere like the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday shopping. It's a month where it's going right at your emotions and your emotional need to like be loved and express love and, and be part of what everyone else is doing. You know, go for social proof and follow the herd. And, you know, there's so many things even before the price tag is put up this sense that you have to buy this stuff. Um, And look, there's a benefit to it. I'm not, again, I'm not saying don't buy holiday gifts for your, for your loved ones, but understand that like you're being swept up in this emotional tide um, that can carry you too far. Uh, And, you know, if you're, if you're someone that has, that tends to overspend, you need to, you need to know that. Um, If you have it under control, then enjoy the spending, go and listen to the jingles and see the Santa and, Look at the smiling, happy, cherubic faces.
1: Uh, yeah, this anchoring effect is really interesting to me. I was watching a show with, um, I think it was Adam Grant. It was like these little shorts on on Amazon Prime called Why Are We So Stupid? And they did <laughs> I haven't this, seen it, but yeah. Uh, it's great. They did this one on the anchoring effect where they had like this jar full of jelly beans. And they uh-huh. asked people, are there more or less than 6,000 jelly beans in this jar? And then they ask another group of people, are there more or less than 1,000 jelly beans in this jar? And it was like the same number of jelly beans each time. And then that anchoring effect just naturally pulls that, that estimate yep. higher. Um, it's also a good technique when it comes to negotiating salaries too, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's it is, sure. they often say the person who puts out the first number has an advantage. Um, and this is a classic example of me not practicing what I preach. I hate. As much as I'm here as an expert on money, I hate negotiating for fees or anything, but um, you know anchoring is just the idea it's like an anchor it's what it sounds like the first number that's out there um, tends to be have a really uh, a stronger pull than any other numbers. Um, you know like it it works with this idea of relativity right you see a, a car that's priced at $35,000 and you think it's worth $35,000 so Whatever it might be marked down to, you're still sort of drawn to that thirty-five thousand dollar anchor as an idea uh, of what it should be worth. Um, that's why, like a thirty-two thousand dollar car, seems like it's oh, I'm, it's thirty-three thousand dollars off because you started there. If you started at twenty-five thousand and it was thirty-two, you would feel very differently. Um, but the anchor is set that way. And in, in negotiations, right, you come in and you say, "I want a hundred thousand dollar salary." As opposed to them saying, "I'm offering you a sixty thousand dollar salary," you might end up at eighty in the middle anyway. But that first person, it's a very different feeling, um, depending on how it's set up, and and the draw is is remarkably strong. Um, you know, the the jelly bean things are awesome, and there's so related to anchoring. It, 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 what I what I think is really awesome is this idea called arbitrary coherence, um, which is actually Dan, my co-author, sort of pioneered the study showing that anchoring. Is arbitrary. (laughs) You know, it's in many ways, you know, the the study he did, um, I I forget which one, I've just been so many variations of it. But essentially, that idea you you presented, are there more or less than however many jelly beans? You can can get in people's head a different way. You can say to them, um, put a bar of jelly beans uh, and say, okay, what's your phone number? Okay, what are the last three digits of your phone number? Which is totally random, right? And okay, your last three digits of your phone number are 275. Uh, do you think that there are more or less than 275 jelly beans in this jar? And then how many jelly beans in this dar- jar do you think? And what they find is that people that have a low last three digits, right, two, 300 and less, tend to estimate that final question much lower than people that have a high like 7, 800 at the end because of this anchoring, because of like this arbitrary occurrence and, and the fact that it's totally random. It's not like you're walking in there and someone's saying, I'm a jelly bean expert and I think there's 800 jelly beans here. What do you think? It's like, what's your phone number? What's your social security? It, it, it's the, the suggestive power of numbers and our need to feel like we're on the right track. Uh, is just so strong. It's um, I wish I, I wish I was genuinely evil. Like I wrote, <laughs> I wrote, I wrote the satire, get rich cheating. But like, as I can never actually be a bad person. <laughs> which someday, um, because marketers, man,
1: it's super interesting. Like, cause I've, I've been going down this rabbit hole of studying behavioral science, behavioral economics for the last you know, maybe month or two. Just it's, I tend to study things and like go down, go down rabbit holes for like a month or two at a time. And this is where I've been recently. And it's been super fascinating, just super yeah. interesting. And like, I'm looking for ways to, to like, do this to my kid as he's growing up like how can i manipulate his behavior using some of these techniques
0: uh, well i mean look that's, in a good way we, right no you joke but in in some ways isn't that what setting an example for your child is right yeah. You're like we don't lie now we do lie like mm-hmm. some of us lie about santa claus talking about holidays some of us lie about like why mommy and daddy are yelling at each other like there are little lies but you say we don't lie as a standard and then that's the anchor from which things might stretch a little bit. Um, you know, setting an example for how hard you work and are you healthy and exercise in, in many ways, it's, it's anchor. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, again, I go back to what I said earlier. You can't change human nature. Like I'm, my goal is not to make people change who they are. So recognize that these things play a role in our day-to-day lives and decision-making, whether it's financial or otherwise.
1: Talking about, Financial decision-making, earlier you touched on this idea of uh, the fungibility of money, right? That, you know, a dollar should be a dollar, should be a dollar, right? But we don't always think of like that, do we, right? And we were talking a little bit earlier about the opportunity cost of, you know, not getting a Honda. Um, I'm wondering what's the opportunity cost? How does that play with like the mental Accounting. I guess first of all, let's talk about what mental accounting is, sure. and then could it be that these people who opted to get a if if they're asked where you can do the thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars was that because they had called that their Honda Civic dollars or whatever? Sure. Right?
0: So mental account- accounting is is a fascinating um, bias or behavioral principle, and and briefly, what it is is that when we think about money and, and other things, but if this gets money, we think about it very differently depending on the source of that money or the use of that money. For instance, um, you know, people will, you know, if you give someone a, a $12,000 bonus at the end of the year, as opposed to a $1,000 a month raise, it's treated very differently. Like um, the $1,000 a month raise feels like this is serious money. The source is my work. It's my job. That thousand dollars is spent in a more responsible way a $12,000 bonus feels like it's a bonus. It's a surprise. It's fun, right? It's a one-time payment and people spend that much less responsibly Um, or, you know, responsible is a loose word, but just they they don't spend it on like bills and everything. They spend it on something fun and frivolous or they carve off $5,000 to spend it. Um, it, You're still getting $12,000 for the year, but because of the source of it and the framing of it, you think it differently. Or another way of looking at it is like, uh, you know, uh, money from your job is treated very different than maybe like inheritance or a lottery winning. Now, our $12,000, whether we get it from a bonus or a salary, or we get it from a lottery winning or going to casino or whatever it may be, that $12,000 is our $12,000, it's it's fungible, right? It should be the same money no matter where we get, excuse me, no matter where we get it from, right? You find a $100 bill on the floor or in the ground, in the street, that's the same as $100 you got elsewhere. That, That goes all into your account, if you will, but we treat it very differently, um, and, you know, that also goes for how the, the destination of the money, if you will, like we, we treat fun things and discretionary spending and, um, you know, pleasures very differently than we treat important stuff like insurance and rent and healthcare. care. Um, and, you know, this is the mistake we make. And I use the term mistake, meaning compared to what a rational economic actor does or right? a perfect economic human. Um, they shouldn't do that because of fungibility, right? They should recognize that all our money is the same. However, mental accounting is one of these things where like, it, it does serve a purpose, right? It, it would be too much for us to think of all of our money as all the same. Mental accounting essentially leads us to be able to budget and to, like, to move forward, right? Again, if you were to like, go to dinner and think, hey, should I spend $100 on dinner? This is the same $100 I have to pay my health insurance with and plan for my retirement or whatever. That, that's too much. So if we can create accounts mental or otherwise, where this is my discretionary spending, this is my shopping money, this is my uh, saving for the future money, that can be a healthy thing to do, to help us make our decisions less cumbersome and less overwhelming. Um, So to answer your question about the Honda thing, I mean, it is entirely conceivable that these folks have made a mental, they have a car buying mental account, right? I've got, I'm going to, I need a car for whatever reason. And so I put $30,000 in my car buying account. And it just gets hard to literally move money from account to account. Again, you've, you've done a moment of thinking and you decided this is the best thing to do. It's hard to then tell yourself, wait, hey, Jeff, I made a mistake and go back and change that. Um, so it's another reason why it's hard to get people off that. Um, it's because they've said, this is what I'm, I'm going to spend. Um, so you know, mental accounting is both irrational, but potentially helpful as long as it's sort of not taken to extremes and and done in a stubborn way.
1: What would be like an extreme example of mental accounting? Would that be, Mm -hmm. I think there's the example in your book where you just take actual physical dollar bills and just Mm -hmm. split it up amongst the envelopes. Would that be like the most extreme case?
0: I I think, yeah. I mean, I think budgeting to the penny and to an obsessive level, um, it's just not healthy. Now, look, everyone has different moments in their lives where they need, to do that, right? You're you're having you lost a job. Um, you're having a tough time. You need to like pinch every penny. But you know there are also folks that are that are relatively well off that that say, you know, I'm going to put hundred dollars here and I'm not going to spend a single penny more. Um, and then if they have an emergency or you know they have someone's birthday and they want to buy a gift, they 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 beat themselves up for over spending ten extra dollars. Um, and that's just not a healthy way to live right? We don't, again, want everyone to be these machines. We just want them to have some more control. There are folks that take that to to the extreme of, you know, sometimes literally putting their money in envelopes um, and, and other times just sort of limiting their own options. You know, money is, supposed to, money is supposed to help us, you know, blossom. It's supposed to provide a little bit of freedom to us to have choices, you know, as I said, to decide what we want to do and focus um, when we spend it you know, irresponsibly we can get in trouble, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it's meant to be a tool of advancement for us.
1: I'm starting to feel like I can't trust myself.
0: Don't <laughs> <No, laughs> you can't give me your money. I'll take care of it. It's fine. <laughs> Just, you know, right away, be
1: that's, that's the interesting thing. Like give, give you my money. You'll take care of it. Do we have the same cognitive biases for other people's money as we do for our own?
0: Uh, yes, but it's less um, extreme. I, Functionally, no, we treat our, it's very different. Like um, we all have, we're all prone to the same biases. It's just a question of in what context um, and how strong those are. And what I found is, you know, when you think about what I'm going to, what I would tell you to do, if I was your financial advisor, what I would tell you to do with your money for your, pay your school bills and retirement and save for your kid's future. Like that tends to be me going back in the cold, looking at this, like the graphs and the numbers and not being emotional. But when I start thinking about my money, right, that's my college, that's my retirement and my kids. And like, I'm emotional about that. Those things are connected to me in a way that, that, you know, no one else can understand. Um, so the biases do impact me differently. You know, it's why, you know, the, having a financial advisor um, is for the most part, like a great idea, right? Someone who can take money, which is so emotionally charged, and it's not you and your partner, um, or spouse who have their own, you know, there's a whole other layer of emotions there. It's someone separated um, who can look at it like with those numbers and help you think about what to do. Now, of course, there's also the issue of like financial advisors, like you have to get a reputable one and trustworthy, etc. But if you're in a position to get advice from someone who doesn't have that emotional connection, I can just look and hear what you want to do and think about what would be best for you based upon those numbers and charts, that is a help. Um, you don't have to do what he or she he or she says, but it would be great to do. I'm not that person. I'm not, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a like he put your money in these stocks or anything. I'm a like this is why you're so crazy, man. Come on.
1: <laughs> Thanks very much for that, man. So, uh, last so you can section. still
0: send me your money. Don't that don't mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, you can send it to me, you guys, if you want. Uh, so we talked about um, like the the last section of your of the book, uh, dollars and cents, is all about how we kid kind of ward off these negative I don't know are they negative cognitive biases I don't know they might serve some good purposes um but we we talked about anchoring we talked about arbitrary coherence and confirmation bias uh another one you talk about is this concept of hurting and self-hurting can you Mm -hmm. talk to us about that
0: sure hurting um you may have, people may have heard of like a social proof or social pressure or just the idea that we tend to go along with the crowd. Um, you know, a lot of people hear this referred to when it comes to like investing in stocks, right? Like everybody's buying Apple, I got to do it. Or the stock market is falling because everyone's selling, I should sell it too. Or, you know, it happens, you know, when, when you see people sort of, uh, I don't know, buy, there's a new shoe that's really hot and everyone's wearing the new shoe, you got to go buy the new shoe or new car or whatever it is. When we when we go along with what others are doing um, because we don't have, we haven't figured out if it's the right choice or not. Um, And it's particularly powerful with um, our peer group, a more focused peer group. Like if I go on TV and I see, you know, everybody's hoarding toilet paper, maybe I'm a little drawn to that by like the idea of hurting, but like it's everybody. If I go on TV and I see, you know, everybody in my neighborhood that's just like me and has a young family and lives on my street (laughs) is doing it, then I'm like, Oh, I got to do it in both cases, I haven't really decided if it's the right choice. I'm just being guided by the herd. Um, now, if you take that idea of like it being a tight peer group even farther really to its ultimate endpoint, I am a peer group of my for myself. I, I am the only peer in the world for me. Um, and so, if I in a world could see that I was doing something and all of the Jeff Chryslers were doing something, I would of course think that that's the right thing to do. And how this tends to play out is when we look at our past decisions. And again, we don't want to question ourselves. We don't want to say we're wrong. And we say, oh, that past decision that Jeff made. I know Jeff. Jeff is smart. Jeff's just like me. He probably made the right choice. Um, and we tend to just go along with the decision that we've made in the past. You know, the, the easy example is going to buy a $5 latte, right? You know, I guess, I guess avocado toast has replaced $5 latte. as the evil overspend. But okay, fine. Say you go buy a $10 avocado toast. If I go on Monday to buy that $10 to- avocado toast and it's my first time, I'm like, yeah, let's give it a try. I'll have it. It'll be good. If I go back on Wednesday, I'm probably not going to really think about it. I might think, oh, you know, I remember on Monday I said it was a good idea, so I'll do it again. By Friday, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely getting the avocado toast. I always get the avocado toast, right? It's, the f- it's how it's always been. <laughs> right? And so on and so on. And it builds. And we tend to like follow our own herd, um, which can you know lead us down sort of this confirmation bias and reinforcing path of a poor decision. Um, so it's, it's an easy phrase, but you better check yourself now and then before you, I don't even want to finish the phrase, wreck yourself. <laughs> I'm getting a little punchy. It's the end of a long day. I've got to, have hey, got a rhyme and.
1: Hey, yeah, yeah. I dig it. I dig it. Uh, this concept of self hurting is interesting because I, it, memory came to mind when I was very early in my career, I was studying to be an actuary and every morning I'd have to study for actuarial exams. And I'd sit at this cafe And I'd get a apple fritter on Monday, Mm -hmm. and I say, yeah, it was a good idea on Monday. Let's get it again on Tuesday. And they say, no, it's like three months, and I've been eating apple fritters for breakfast for three months straight.
0: Right, which isn't just bad financially, but I, you know, it's not great for the waistline. No, no, definitely, (laughs) definitely was everything in moderation. Right, there's another grandma's phrase for you.
1: So, I mean, officially, it's it's official. We suck at making decisions. So, what are your top three? Favorite tips, you mm-hmm. know, for taking our flawed financial thinking and maybe helping sure. ourselves with it.
0: Well, I'd say broadly speaking, to just stop and think about the big picture. Like when you can't, like why are you making this choice? Not like the we all tend to get caught up in the mechanics of like how we're paying or making this, decision, but like why? Like how does this choice connect to who you are uh, as a person and what you want to be about? And That sounds very flighty, but there are studies showing in the moments of stress and uncertainty and pressure, if we stop and think about the big picture and our goals and our values, that can just help settle us into a a moment where we think, oh, do I really, is this really about who I am? Um, And what that tends to do is it helps us think about the, the future a little bit more. Um, because our our biggest, you know, this issue of self-control is oftentimes we don't think about the future. We just act, excuse me, upon the emotional feelings of right now. So, if you find a way to stop and think about the choice, that's a big picture, great thing to do every time. Now, my next item sort of refines that every time thing, like don't stress about the little spends. We tend to worry about the little spends, right? Like a cup of coffee and whether I should tip 50 cents or not and get overwhelmed and not worry so much about the big spends, right? Like a car a college, a house. I and mean, when we think about those, but like within, the, within those spendings, like a car, there may be like a, a $1,000 add-on that we're like, oh, fine, whatever. I'm already spending $30,000 or a house, right? There might be like a, a renovation that's an extra $10,000 and you're like, oh, whatever, I'm already spending $300,000. That's more money than you're ever going to make up for tipping a barista. But we tend to like stress about the little things and not the big ones. And my advice would be, this whole idea of like stop and thinking about it, like if you have to choose, always stop and spend as much time as you can on big number the the actual amount of money that's being spent, right not the percent but the actual amount like stop and think about those because that impacts your future and your potential and your freedom don't stress about the little ones i 'm not saying just spend thousands of one dollar bills throwing them out the street at people, but like don't worry about that like live your life. the ones that are in the middle, the sort of like recurrent medium sized spending, those you should think about now and then. But like uh like paying for cable, paying $150 a month for cable. Think about that when you first sign up, but then don't worry about it every night, but every, you know, for six months or whatever. But every now and then check in and say, am I watching cable? Is it worth $150? Um, you know, any sort of like recurring automatic bill payment you have. Like it's nice to not worry about your payments, your cell phone, et cetera. So let it go. Don't worry about it all the time, but every now and then check in on it. So it sort of flips what we tend to do on its head. Again, we tend to stress about the little ones and not the big ones. Let's just flip that on our head. Um, you know, the, the third thing, the piece of advice I have, um, there's a ton of them, but, but I would say like finding a trusted person to talk about with your money, even if it's not a financial advisor, but just someone who you can talk about your money that is not like emotionally connected to you. Like it's not your partner. Um, it's just someone who can give you another perspective, whether that's like, Hey, do you think I should spend money on this? Should I buy this car or this house? Or, you know, um, you know, you're going shopping or you go shopping with friends sometimes like, no, it's hard because we tend not to share all our financial details with everyone. we like to think, act like we know what we're doing, but like find a trusted friend or, or someone who you can be yourself with. Like, again, nobody knows what they're doing with money. We all pretend we do and find someone who you can be honest about that. Um, this is a lot easier said than done. It's a big challenge I, as I say it. And as people are listening, like who is active? Like I can't think of anybody. I have friends, but I don't talk about money. It's a, try to find some place where you can talk about money. Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a forum. Um, maybe it's, I don't know, a book. <laughs> maybe it's something, but find a place where you can be honest with yourself about uh, how hard it is to think about money.
1: Thank you very much for those tips. Man. I really appreciate that. Do you want to leave us with any other cognitive biases that we might find ourselves falling victim to this season when it comes to anything related <laughs> to money.
0: <laughs> um, that's a big one. I would say that the, the, broadly speaking, the, the bias that, I, that I'm most in, interested in exploring um, comes from the, an idea where like money is not as powerful as we think it is. More studies are showing that like as a matter of like incentives and motivation and engagement in the workplace, money is, you know, you have to get a certain level of money. But like after that, like that doesn't really engage us. It doesn't engage our, our sense of purpose and identity and, and professional like motivation. I think that's true throughout our lives. Like money is, is, a, is a substitute we often fall back on, again, for how do you measure love and these other things. But like just remember that, that it's not the be all and end all it's our most common way of measuring value. I know from my own life, right, I talked about the, the education and the opportunities that I passed up to be a corporate lawyer and everything. And my family didn't understand and, and every little accomplishment I had, like I got on a comedy show or I was on TV or I went over and worked with somebody. The question was, how much does it pay? That isn't how it was measured in value to me, but I came to understand that's just like how they could measure something that they didn't understand um, the value of. And that's okay, right? But, but recognize that money isn't the only way to measure things, whether it's your own value, your relationship value, or even your work and your purpose in life. Um, And when we do that, we'll start to find the other things that matter to us and and we'll start to be able to make our financial decisions without as much pressure, without feeling like every financial decision impacts our value as people. Um, They're just decisions that help us move along through the days.
1: Last formal question before we jump into a quick random round. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hundred years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for?
0: Saving the planet from an asteroid. Uh, If I can't, you know, I, I would like to make critical thinking cool. You know, I, I would just like in whatever realm, finances, politics, personal lives, like I would like to make the idea that we think about stuff to, to be the default. Um, and I feel like our culture has really walked away from um, critical thought for thinking things through more than one step, right? Thinking about the future ramifications, just, just really deeply thinking about stuff. I feel like we've walked away from that as, as a leading value. And I would love to return to, to that. You know, not that we're all going to sit around in top hats and, and pontificate about stuff. We can find a way to fold it into our, our hectic lives, um, but let's find that way.
1: I dig it, man. So, first question here in the random round. Oh, God. What are you currently most excited about or currently exploring?
0: Um, I'm most excited about the idea of uh, rapid COVID tests or <laughs> COVID vaccine. Um, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I have two young kids and I'm really just getting into being with them and they're, they're in different stages of their education and um, I've come to Try to embrace the fact that I am a homeschool teacher. A lot of times, and and I'm I'm sort of learning the art and the craft of of teaching and, and helping them learn. I've always been involved, but more so now, and I'm I'm loving that.
1: What are you inspired by right now?
0: I'm currently on on I guess a a science kick, in a weird way. Like I'm just sort of tooling around and looking at new studies and things that are out there. It might be a reaction to. Uh, people rejecting science so aggressively out in um, the COVID world uh, or might be my dad's voice echoing in my head as a scientist, but just, I don't know, geeking out a little bit on that stuff.
1: What do you believe that other people think is crazy?
0: <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, oof, I believe that... Uh, I. I my spirituality is a, is a, a physics-based spirituality. I believe in the power of the universe. Um, I don't believe it's an omnipotent being, um, but I believe that there is a beauty and an art to um, all of the forces in the universe uh, and how they can play a role in us. And I think that there is so much power in what we haven't yet learned about ourselves and the universe that, that connects us that I'm excited for every little Marginal breakthrough to see what else we can do as people in this crazy spinning.
1: That's pretty interesting. I've got like kind of a physics based spirituality twist on reincarnation mm-hmm. that is grounded in the laws of physics because you know, energy can't be created or destroyed, it'll be transferred. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the electrical impulses that energize your body right now, but
0: I love <laughs> that's, it. No. Yeah,
1: that's, that's, that's it. Yeah, it's
0: valid as you know going up to clouds and playing on a harp you know yeah i
1: mean i was in high school when i made that up i was definitely on some clouds um <laughs> at 4:20 20 p.m and, understood yeah <laughs> what would you do if you're the last person on
0: earth um i don't know man i always I think about that twilight zone episode where the guy uh he really wanted to read and couldn't get time to read and there was an apocalypse and suddenly had all time in the world to read And then he broke his reading glasses and he was like, F -F, man, I can't. (laughs) Um, So I don't want to put anything out there, but I don't know. I think I would just, I I would walk. Um, I like, I like motion. I'd walk and I'd, I probably weren't, I probably wouldn't worry so much about writing down all the crazy ideas that I have because I just let them go. Question. I'll come back to
1: you. Yeah. Speaking of reading, what are you what are you currently reading?
0: Uh, I'm currently reading two books. Um, one is one of the Harry Potter books I'm reading with my son, um, and another is uh, a book called Wanting that a friend of mine gave me um, that I I only just started. Uh, you know, I don't read nearly enough books. I tend to read short form things, magazines, and internet crap. But I'm trying to do some more reading. Uh,
1: what do you have on repeat in terms of a song?
0: Oh, I'm, as any good middle-aged white boy, uh, I'm listening to Billy uh Bad Boy, a lot lately. In fact, I listened to it right before this podcast.
1: All right. That's awesome, man. I'll open up the random question generator. Oh, God, I'm scared. Nah, that's okay. They're all safe. What's your favorite book?
0: Um, Welcome to the Monkey House by Kurt Vonnegut. It's a Uh, collection of his short stories. I'm sure your listeners, there are a lot of Vonnegut fans in here.
1: Yeah, I love Vonnegut. He's awesome. Mm -hmm. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why?
0: Oh, man, I've gone, I've done a lot of thinking. Like, I've gone around in a lot of circles in this. And so I would say um, stopping time has been a consistent one, um, as well as sort of uh, telekinesis. I don't want to control other people, but being able to, you know, sort of use the force essentially Mm. um, on objects.
1: What incredibly strong opinion do you have that is Mm. completely unimportant in the grand scheme of things?
0: You should load the dishwasher in a way that is conscious of how you're going to have to unload it later.
1: (laughs) that's a good one. We'll do the last one here. Oh, what's the best thing you got from one of your parents?
0: I just think like a, a value in education and learning. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So what's next on the agenda for you working on any new books or anything?
0: Uh, I am always doing different projects speaking. Um, you know, right now, PeopleScience.com um has been a baby of mine. That'll be about by the time that comes out, we'll be close to three years um, looking at some other opportunities, just looking at ways, again, to spread the gospel of of behavioral science as a a tool. Um, People can track that down, peoplescience.com or track me down at jeffchreisler.com and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and all that and see what's happening. I'd love to hear from your listeners what they think.
1: Jeff, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here. I really appreciate you at the end of a very long day for you (laughs) to, to come hang out, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.